0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, Father, may we see that you are holy and that we are not. But that, Father, because of the blood of Jesus, we stand before you righteous on His account and not ours, that has been credited to us. And that because of, because of this, Father, you are making us into a, a holy priesthood, a royal royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are bringing this about in us. Father, I ask that you would give us humble hearts to hear your word this morning, myself included. Father, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to continue our journey through First Peter I pray that so far it's been a, a blessing to you, a, a challenge and an encouragement. and uh, Thank you. <laughs> that it's been uh, sobering at times, but fueling and, and um, a delight and such. So far in First Peter, really what, what Peter's been doing has been defining for us what this salvation is that Christians talk about all the time. Peter began his letter talking about the elect saints in exile, God's choosing, his gracious choosing of some unto salvation. And he, then Peter continued to teach us about this marvelous and merciful and gracious gift born out of love, his giving of new birth. So that the, those He would choose, that, that then He would give them new life, which is, is gonna you're going to hear a lot of that theme again today. He's going to pick back up on that. And according to His great mercy, He says early on, that He has given these people new birth. He's brought their souls to life. And that He is then protecting them particularly from the impurities of fake faith or misplaced faith, so that one day when they see Jesus, they'll respond in praise. Those are the only people worthy to spend eternity with God, by the way. is those that would respond in praise and adoration and beholding at the coming of Jesus. So he is preparing these people for that day and so now we ask the question what's what's next? So even for those who he's writing to in the midst of uncertainty and challenge and brokenness, so it doesn't matter who it is, those who are believers, the question is, what's next? And for Peter, what's next in this context is growing up in salvation. Growing up in salvation is what's next for every believer indeed it's always what's next this is not like all right for this season I can be in neutral and then the next season I should be growing up growing up in Christ is always what's next if you want to know what you should be about today it is growing up in salvation If you want to know what you should be about tomorrow, I mean, we all ask it, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be about? What's my purpose in life? Blah, 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 blah. A lot of times those are just distractions from what the scriptures tell us is clearly next. Grow up in salvation. That's what's next. When you've exhausted everything necessary to do that, then you can worry about all those extra questions. Beginning in verse 14, if you look back in chapter 1, he says, as obedient children. So he begins this language of what it looks like to grow up in salvation. It's to be obedient children. Because of this great salvation now, this is what it looks like to grow in this salvation. If you look at verse 2 of this passage we're in, and he says this, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual that that it." That by it you may what grow into, grow up into salvation. Now, just a couple quick initial thoughts about this salvation and growing up in the salvation, and we'll flesh much of this out as we go. But the first is this: that salvation is not a one and done. It's not a one and done thing. Well, I believed in salvation. I prayed a prayer. I joined a church, so on and so forth. And now I'm set to move on to other things. Now I think most of us in here would would wholeheartedly disagree, like would wholeheartedly affirm that that it, that's not the case. But then, do we live that way? Some of you are familiar with our one-on-two discipleship called DNA. DNA is not a one-and-done. I hear frequently this idea. Well, I know what is taught in DNA already. I'm good to move on. If that's you, you don't understand DNA. DNA is not just information to be understood. It's a lifestyle to be lived. What we learn in there is the building blocks. It's the pathway to growing up in salvation. From the scriptures, how is it that we grow up in salvation? Some of the core aspects of that. I, being someone with many hours of theological, formal theological education, one of the most helpful things that I've ever learned is what I learned through DNA. I practice that over and over again every single day, moment by moment. Salvation is not a one and done two. salvation means to be holy as God is holy. To grow up in salvation is to be holy as God is holy. You've, you heard Paul say in Ephesians, it's to become to the full stature of the maturity of Jesus, of Christ. Well, what is that? Christ, the Holy One, the exact imprint of His Father. Holiness in the flesh. It means to be holy as God is holy, that our lives would increasingly and finally one day look holy as He is holy. So what, what do you think you were saved for? Just so we could be happy? Certainly there's a, a joy component. No, He saved you that you would reflect and spread His glory. What's that look like? Holy lives. I think at that, that moment we should say, wow, he saved me for that. Like I think most of us like look at that and go, well, oh my gosh, Like that's a, that's a drudgery or that's, that's a task or that's a duty. Man, he saved me to make me holy and reflect his holiness? Wow! Why isn't that our response? Three, picking up on from last week a little bit here. Salvation means we love one another from holiness and we love one another to holiness. We love from holiness. Our our love should be coming from the pursuit of holiness and from a place of holiness. That will then guide and direct and define what love even looks like. And then loving people to holiness. We don't need to love people to our preferences or to a mere image of ourselves. Or even what we think is best. We love people towards what God has said is best. Both inside this place and out. We come from holiness. We call others to holiness. Now I know a lot of us, particularly if you grew up in the church, and legalistic settings and such, where I felt like i got to earn my, my redemption, this call to holiness begins to get many of us uncomfortable. But growing up in holiness is what's next. Always. Growing up in salvation is what's next. Let's begin with verse 3. And then we'll go back to 2 and 1. He ends with this in this little three-verse section. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there's this growing up in salvation... And all of this hinges upon this phrase, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the taste of the Lord initiates our growth. It's what Peter is telling us here at the beginning. The taste of the Lord initiates this growth, this growing up in salvation. Now, I need you to kind of think about or remember two quick things here. The first is this. The point of Peter's opening on this salvation is in large part to say that God has done this not you. Yeah. This is God's doing not your doing. Salvation is his work from his choosing to our beholding, it's his work. From our choosing or sorry his choosing to our beholding, it is all God's work. The second thing is this, if you study the verb form in this part of the phrase, it's not an imperative. He's not telling you to go taste. He'll say that in another spot. He is saying, he's giving uh, an indicative, something that has already happened. This is a reality that has taken place. I know in the English it's a little hard, if indeed, if this is true of you. The the point here is He's saying to those who have experienced new birth and this salvation, this is true. You have tasted. It's an indicative. He's not saying go taste. He's saying you've already tasted. That God ignited your taste buds and put the food right there on your tongue. It is His work, His glory. Now that you have tasted, He's not questioning, but stating a reality. Which means, in part, that He's not talking to unbelievers or skeptics. He's talking to believers. So if you're an unbeliever today or not sure where you're at, much of today, I think, will sound like a call to prove your righteousness. But if you're a believer... Today should sound like a call to give witness to new birth. There's a big fundamental difference. See, our righteousness is tied up with Jesus. Indeed, it's all his. So now we live in a holy way that gives witness to it. So the question is this. So those are the, the two two things to kind of keep in mind. The question is Have you tasted and believed that the Lord is good? So I'm going to make it a conditional question here. Have you tasted and believed that the Lord is good genuinely and truly? What I don't mean is this. Has God made you happy for a moment? Or were you baptized or a part of a church? Have you found a suitable religion for your personal values and goals? Or did you have some past spiritual high? That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking this question. Have you tasted the bread of life? and found that your life of self-righteous pursuit and idolatrous living was bitter, but that God is the taste of true life. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? That He tastes better, and this pursuit over here tastes bitter. Now what does Peter mean by tasting? This is important for us to define this clearly. What does he mean by tasting? Now, there's a pervasive worldview that many of us succumb to very frequently, and that is this, that our feelings are king, and everything else or everyone else must bow to those feelings. So my subjective determination is, is in authority over any objective rationale. And that is our temptation in this context. To make our feelings about God the authority. Taste in this moment does not equal feelings alone or even primarily. Just look at the context, and and we will. Listen, even when we say treasure Jesus, That we desire to be a people who treasure Jesus. We don't mean we desire to be people who go feel happy thoughts about Jesus so that we can, you know, fly around like Peter Pan. What we mean is this make a conscious, intentional, rational decision to believe that He is indeed the greatest treasure. Instead of. What I just described, what Peter is saying is is, listen, you have tasted that the Lord is good. And what he is doing is he is simply summarizing for us the first chapter. Do you see the context? He is summarizing for us the first chapter. Let me review this. If you have your Bibles, please look with me in verse 1. Listen, to taste that the Lord is good is to be a recipient of God's electing grace. To taste, in verse 3, to taste that the Lord is good is to be recipients of God's merciful new birth. Verse 9, to taste that the Lord is good is to have salvation for our souls. Verse 18, to taste that the Lord is good is to leave behind our ignorant and empty ways as history. Verse 18 as well, to taste that the Lord is good is to have new life through redemption. In verse 21, to taste that the Lord is good is to believe in God. He is saying these things have happened. That's why you're going to live this way. He's not saying you're going to live this way just because you feel good about Jesus. This is a statement of reality. For the follower of Jesus. You see, tasting that the Lord is good is not just a feeling, but a knowing, and more than just a mental assent. It's a believing. It's a conviction. I heard someone say, a belief is something that we hold, but a conviction is something that holds us. And that's what he's saying here. This is not just a believing these things, but these things have happened to you you, and you know them to be true and they hold on to you. This has happened. Then this is why you will live this way. He or she, the follower of Jesus, has tasted life in Christ and found it to be good. Now, couple thoughts on this tasting. First of all, it's a personal tasting. It's a personal tasting. It's an individual reality. It's not simply a corporate reality. It's not something you just get by uh, osmosis, right, and being around other Christians, this election, new birth, salvation, believing, doesn't happen simply because you were born into a Christian family, or you care about the poor, or you sit in this seat Sunday after Sunday. It doesn't happen just because of those things. This is something that must happen to and within your soul personally and individually. And indeed, it is something that God does personally as well. But it's not just a personal, t- it's a personal tasting, yes, yes. But it's not a private tasting. It's not a private tasting. It's not something that's just between you and God only. Too many of us have bought into the individualism of our culture, and that's just me and God, and no one else has any right to be a part of that or speak ill of that or challenge that or whatever. We walk in secret discipleship. I mean, many of us come on Sundays, go to Refcoms, but we still manage to keep our discipleship to ourselves, only displaying for others the Facebook version, all glamour, no substance. Now be careful, just because we let our baggage out doesn't mean that we aren't picking and choosing, so that we might still keep our tasting of the Lord, supposedly, as secret It's a personal tasting that happens in public community. It's a part, you're a part of a body, a part of other personal tasters. And then you get to enjoy some of their personal tasting to help bolster your personal tasting. And you get to help them. So it's personal, but it's not private, and it's life altering. Necessarily life altering. For someone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, he is saying, you will walk these ways. So I think we see and have seen in our culture lots of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but there is no life change. They have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Two aspects of this life-altering taste. It indeed gives new life. I've said it this way before. God doesn't move into a factory just to let it sit there empty and produce nothing. He moves in. He takes up residence. And things happen. So this tasting of the Lord gives new life. Jesus said that He is what? The bread of life. He says to the woman at the well, if you would drink of me, you would have living water and you will thirst no more. What is He saying? That there is a life through me. Peter is in, is in this context comparing this life to the empty way of our forefathers pursuing self-righteousness and worshiping images of none other than themselves. And he's saying, that's not life. Oh, it seemed like life. And oh, when we want to go back to Egypt, it seems like life. But it's not life. This is life. In Christ, this is life. Life. But this taste, soul-deep belief in God gives new life. I know God, and He loves me. This changes, this gives new life. It also changes life. It alters life by changing life. This is the part, I think, that often gets really sticky for us. You see, oftentimes we want the benefit of heaven and relief from brokenness, but we still often want the mud pies of our vices. It tastes better to us. But here's the deal. The taste of of salvation, so this salvation, the taste of it is the taste of the Holy One Himself. you are tasting knowing experiencing holiness himself see that's the question like did, did i like am i mentally ascending and falling in love with some kind of cool person that can save me from the brokenness of my life and i mean that all sounds fine and dandy but that person is holiness himself. So to taste him is to taste holiness. You're not just tasting something better than what's here. You're tasting holiness himself. Listen, therefore, to taste the purity of our God is to grow dissatisfied with the taste of unholiness around us and inside us. Listen to me. If unholiness does not taste bitter to you, then God has never tasted good to you. If unholiness does not taste bitter to you, then God has never tasted good to you. And listen, this is more holiness than just avoiding tattoos, alcohol, cuss words, and making sure you go to church on Sunday. As you will see later today. It should not only change the fruit of our lives, but it changes the desires of our lives. Meaning the desire to be holy as He is holy, not as we fathom holiness to be. I wonder, I wonder, how often our prayers look like this God, thank you for meeting all my preferences and help me to obtain more of them. Verses, O oh Father, through your saving grace, I have tasted and seen your holiness and that you are good. And I want to live in that presence forever. Will you make me more like you? May that be our preference? Listen, the extent to which you live and pray this way is a direct fruit of the of your maturity or immaturity. Now, as we move into verse one here in just a second here 's where the heat gets gets kind of turned up on us a bit if you didn 't feel it was hot already. <laughs> We love to talk about unholiness that's far from our own struggles, right? I think in the modern church and in some of the contexts even I grew up in, that whole idea of like preaching things that will tickle people's ears and make them feel good, it was not like necessarily false doctrine, but it was preaching on sin that most of the people didn't struggle with. Listen, the the we love to talk about things like. Abortion, adultery, drunkenness, racism, so on and so forth. Why? Because oftentimes it makes us feel righteous. Now now certainly, I'm sure in our presence, particularly in a size size crowd this big, that there are many of us who struggle with those things of adultery and drunkenness and so on and so forth. So I'm not trying to minimize that. But I think this list in chapter 2 verse 1 are the more common sins at refuge. These are the ones that we've subconsciously decided are not that big of a deal. We may not have said that, may not be willing to say that, but we act like that. It's okay if we're guilty of a little bit of this stuff. At least I'm not like the drug dealer down the road. Literally. Now, I want to be very clear in representing the elders here. These acts of unholiness are not tolerated and will not be tolerated in this church. No more than abuse, adultery, or murder would be tolerated. We desire the, and are committed to the holiness of God. All of it. And I say that with fear and trembling. All of it. Let's look at verse 1. What are we talking about? Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You see, here's the reality. Peter understands that the taste of unholiness stunts our growth. The taste of unholiness. The continued taste of unholiness. The desire to go back to Egypt stunts the growth of a Christian. So God initiates it with, with new birth. The taste of His holiness But the continued tasting, dabbling in unholiness stunts our growth. Peter is saying this, since you have tasted, you need to take action to not stunt your growth. Let me say that again. Since you have tasted, this is a reality. You need to take action to not stunt your growth in this salvation. Listen, here's the reality. The degree to which you give yourself over to the following things is the degree to which your infancy in Christ will continue. Never growing in faith, always a child. Listen, these very acts are the reason why many of us in this room are still children in the faith. The taste of things like malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all seem delightful for the moment. But when engaged, spiritual neglect is its twin. Spiritual diligence, let's talk for a moment, versus spiritual neglect. Because that's kind of what's at the heartbeat here salvation and a tasting of God doesn't put us on a train to heaven. right? I got my ticket to ride. I don't mean the game. I got my ticket to ride, right? That's what I've heard. Everyone's got to get their ticket. Listen, salvation and tasting of God doesn't put us on a train to heaven. Instead, it puts us on a hike. It's more like a hike. Salvation puts us on the path releases us of the burden of slavery to sin and God's wrath upon us and gives us the power of the spirit and joy in the lord and the direction of which to take the steps in walking just read pilgrim's progress it's a great picture of what i'm talking about christian and the relief of his burden it's more like a hike a long one and a hard one but it's a hike Our diligent walking gives witness to what we have tasted. You see, it is the power of God that applies the strength to take action. But it is you and I that take action. The person who displays no diligent activity in following after Christ has not tasted. For the taste gives life, but it also changes life. This means fighting every day to walk in holiness, to sift every thought, every emotion, every action, and make it obedient to the Word of God, that which you should be craving. And again, notice, we've, we've relegated this diligent walking, I think, for decades in our culture to no tattoos or alcohol or Sunday church attendance and praying over our meals. And while as long as we do that, we can checkbox our things, all while ignoring the rest of what it means to be holy. He is saying, Peter is saying, diligently put away the following things. So now let's talk through the following things first of all malice malice the vicious nature towards others begins in the heart now now listen in, in our context particularly this church like I'm preaching to this church this flock it rarely looks like public raging attack Sometimes it does. I mean, often, but it's, it, most of the time, it looks more subtle. It's more subtle. It's more sneaky. Looks like gossip to others. Looks like hate and bitterness in the subsequent actions coming out of our hearts. It looks like avoidance or accusations through computer screens. Let me give you an example, I think, from, from our church culture, uh, a very practical one. I'm to kind of drill in here To a real tight point, the idea of what what I'm going to call or what what John Piper calls emotional blackmail. This is malice. Let me read it for you. Emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They aren't the same. A person may love well and the beloved still feel hurt and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. There is no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. This emotional device is a great evil. I've seen it often in my three decades of ministry, and I'm eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. End quote. I didn't feel cared for. You didn't protect me. You pushed me too hard. What happens is our feelings birth and define the charges. Then our tongues deliver the charges and we've now been malicious toward our neighbor. If I could just be real honest with you for a moment, your leaders are easy prey and oftentimes take the majority of malicious arrows. But here's the reality. We have all been victims and all been perpetrators of malice. All of us, myself included. And if I have done any of that to you, please forgive me. For us Christians, listen, malice stunts growth. And malice hurts the Christian community around us that's to be helping us grow. Next, deceit, trickery, deceiving others in order to achieve one's own purposes. Take, for example, back to the the emotional blackmail above. That's deceit. What happens is we live in an age where personal unhappiness is often regarded as someone else's fault, and many of us walk into the church and other relationships looking for a scapegoat. End quote. And when we find that scapegoat, that person to blame, that is deceit at its finest. You're the problem. I've deceived the person into thinking that my problems are all their fault. Now certainly there are multiple other examples of deceit, right? Living in secret discipleship and and having a Facebook version of our discipleship where where people only see the, the nice pretty edited photo. That's deceit. That will stunt your growth, Christian. i got to keep up appearances, or i got to keep my brand so everyone can see it. It will stunt your growth. You're denying reality, and you're denying the reality of what's happening to those around you. You're being deceitful. Now the reality is, is most of those around you can tell. They can see it. Next, hypocrisy. Wanting to play the part on the outside, but far from it on the inside. Peter is saying, put this away. This is why there can be no secret discipleship. You should want what's done in secret to align with what's done in public. Here's a great example. Singing songs like we love God so all can hear us, but then neglecting our time in the word and holiness the rest of the week. That would be hypocrisy. Envy. Envy. The jealousy that begrudges another something that we desire and don't have. Maybe we envy another's control over their life, or certain parts of their lives, or maybe we envy another person's affirmation, or we want their approval, or maybe we envy another person's ease in life, or financial comforts. I mean, it doesn't have to be, ooh, they have this shiny car, and I envy that. I mean, that could be an example, but it probably looks more like these things. Like, I wish I had their comfort, or that person's affirmation, or I wish I had their prestige, or their acclaim, or their influence, or... Whatever it is. I wish I had their lack of suffering. Listen, these acts of unholiness distract us from growing up in salvation. The next is slander. Slander. Disparaging talk and driving another person down. Disparaging talk and driving another person down. Listen, this doesn't have to be done publicly. I mean, it can be. But it can also come in the forms of memes, discernment blogs, YouTube channels, Reddit, political posts. I think for us, it oftentimes most sneakily looks like venting. Oh, I just needed someone to vent to. It's oftentimes no more than slander. Well, I just needed someone to calm me down. Where in the Scriptures do we see that model of going to a person to vent where? Because I'm guilty of this too. But where do we see it? Indeed, I think we see the opposite. Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. We actually see the opposite. Listen, you need to go to Jesus to calm the heck down. <laughs> You need to go to Jesus to calm the heck down. If you have to go to someone else when you're fired up, you need to ask them to help you go to Jesus. Help me go to Jesus. And listen, you can get their help to help you go to Jesus without even telling them what the issue is because the issue is inside of you. Listen, I, I'm preaching to myself, I promise. It can also look like seeking counsel sometimes is no more than slander. We've got to be careful among leaders, careful among DNAs and doxes at Sunday lunch. Careful you don't have the preacher for lunch on Sunday, if you know what I'm saying. It's the reverse. Slander is the reverse of Ephesians 4, verse 29. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk, but only what is helpful for building others up only what is helpful for building others up did any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth did anything come out that didn't build others up and when i spoke did i benefit those who listened was i a benefit was i was i good to them listen parents think about this with your kids and the tone of your voices was it a benefit to them Now listen, now you and I don't get to be the judge and jury about what's beneficial. And certainly our feelings don't get to. The Word is. We don't get to say, well, that wasn't beneficial to me. It didn't feel beneficial. We let the Word decide that. Slander will stunt your growth. Slander will stunt my growth. Now listen, I get it. This this is hard. It's hard. It's hard. How in the world are we to walk and put away these things with great diligence? Back to First Peter chapter 2. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Look at verse 2 with me. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The third point for today is this. The, the taste of pure food sustains our growth. The taste of pure food sustains our growth. Alright, let's talk about this. So how in the world are we going to walk? Right, God's, The taste of God's salvation is what initiates it. These things will stunt it. Now, how do we walk in it? How do we persevere in this? And it's the taste of pure food sustains our growth. Now, you know, a couple of things here. He's not equating these people to infants. Like, in other places, the Scriptures describe infants as a bad thing, as immature. Like, you should move on to meatier things. That's, that's not his point here. He's not saying, y'all are a bunch of immature people. Fix this. That's, that's not his point. What he's doing here is he's describing the craving of an infant for milk, and it's a good thing. That's what he's describing. This is a good thing here. I couldn't find a better way to say it than this, so let me quote someone. The milk is not just a benefit to a good life. It's the only way to life. We, listen, we live in a culture where we enjoy many benefits to life. And we oftentimes put the taste of God in the same category. He is not a benefit. This taste, this pure spiritual milk, is not just a benefit to good life. It is the only way to life. From day one, from birth, an infant desires milk. Real birth leads to real craving for real food. Listen, in the midst of trying to raise five kids, <laughs> all of them predominantly felt ex- fed exclusively from mama, if you know what I mean, it was a blessing to me, but also oftentimes a, uh, a curse as well. It was a blessing to me because I didn't have to awake at night to do any feedings, right? I couldn't help in that department. But it was also a curse because he or she began to cry. And if it wasn't from a dirty diaper or sickness, illness, and mama wasn't around, there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Right? And none of ours would take pacifiers. They were hungry. They were hungry, and I would hold them, right? And if you've ever done this with a hungry infant, what do they do? They kind of move their, they're like nestling around on my chest trying to find something. Something, and they found absolutely nothing that they were interested in. And then they would get frustrated even more, right? You ever seen an infant in that moment? You ever held one? Well, they start doing, freaking out, Red-faced, angry, screaming. But listen, that's a good thing. Like in that moment, why? that's a sign of the baby's health. That infant, that infant was hardwired at birth to know that it needed this, that it had to have it for life. It's a bad thing when the baby doesn't cry for food. It means it's sick and needs help. They were born with desire. They even knew the taste and recognized the sweetness. Again, when an infant has lost its appetite and is losing weight, what do we know sadly is true? It is sickly and needs medical attention. And if it doesn't get it, it will die. I'm I'm not pushing the metaphor too hard here. That's Peter's point. But an infant that is eating and eating and gaining weight and pooping and pooping, right, and peeing is thriving. Eating the good stuff, getting rid of the things that's not needed. This is how a Christian is to regard God. Like spiritual milk with eagerness and zeal. If there is no hunger, then there was no birth. He's not saying, just listen to more sermons and read more books. He is saying that someone who has been born again will hunger for God like that infant hungers for its mother's milk. Now this side of eternity, we get God, we act out this craving through the habits of grace, like prayer, community with the saints, general revelation even, and all of it undergirded and guided and under the authority of the Word of God. Right? John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We taste and see primarily that the Lord is good from the Word of God. We crave it. That's where we go to be fed. That's why good preaching works through the Bible and not a bunch of the preacher's good thoughts or ten steps to financial success or whatever garbage he can come up with. We should crave, desire strongly to know God, to commune with God. Again, it's not just a benefit to enjoy here and there. It's the only path to life. If you believe that, you will be in the Word all the time. That is why the infant cries. This means our cute little five-minute Piper or trip devotionals won't cut it. This means coming on Sundays and Refcoms won't cut it. If you've been born again, you will crave pure spiritual milk found only ultimately through the Word of God and from those who crave it too. Here's an issue, if I'm just being honest, that I just don't understand. So many of us will come, hear the Word preach Sunday after Sunday, but when life gets a little hard or there's a sniffle, we stay home, or when sports come around, that's a clear choice. Or tomorrow, the sermon and this passage is forgotten. To do little to nothing with it. There is so much nourishment in these words. I heard recently of someone listening to a sermon back a while ago, three times. There is nourishment here. Nourishment here. But oftentimes we'll move on tomorrow like there's more nourishment in our work schedules, our house cleaning, our sports team, or our money. It doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if we are either sick or we're never born again, I want to know, and i 'm I'm, I'm asking myself these same questions: Where does the craving of the word of life go? What replaces it? Why are our taste buds so dull? We should long We should long for pure spiritual milk, not something watered down or more pal- palatable for our liking. I'm afraid many of us have grown more attracted to watered-down milk. Just give me some nuggets of advice or make sure I feel good about Jesus afterwards or look at this latest tweet or blog or the latest book I've read. Instead, we should long for pure spiritual milk, real food. Go to the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures. You'll see Jesus there. If you need help, just ask no one will look down on you in this place for asking help to read your Bible, whether that's accountability or understanding. The last thing I want to say is this. God, to Christians, listen to me. Those who have been born again, listen to me. God has given you new birth by his great mercy. He has given you taste buds to fathom his great glory. Do you understand me, like what he's done? He has opened your eyes to see. He has ignited your taste buds to taste. You couldn't before. He's done that. Use them. Use them. You've tasted something so much better than what you keep settling for. So let me ask this question. What have you been craving? What actions have you been taking that have stunted your growth in this salvation? And let me encourage us together. Church, let's walk together in repentance and faith toward the one who has given us such great a salvation. For we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if you haven't tasted and seen the Lord is good, or you question that, ask Him to give you that taste. Ask Him to give you new life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need help. I admit every day I struggle. I struggle to remember that I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I forget it. Father, we forget these realities. And Father, I pray that in these next moments as we sing, as we partake in communion together in the Lord's Supper, Father, as we walk tomorrow, Father, give us us a reminder of this taste. And let us go to the Word where the taste is just amplified. Where the delight is increased. Where holiness greater measures of holiness become a reality in our life as it gives witness to this salvation that you've brought to our lives. And Father, I ask that you would make this so in your people. And I ask that you would make this so in this church, in this collection of your saints. Father, I ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.